Well, beloved, this Sunday I am beginning uh, a seven-week sermon series walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I have a bit of homework for you, my beloved, the sheep of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Great Shepherd, for you to be reading through Matthew chapters 5 through 7 on your own over the next several weeks as we will be um, in that section of Scripture. Now, um, if you know anything about our lectionary cycle, you know that some of the readings for Epiphany do come from the Sermon on the Mount, but I got Archbishop Foley Beach's permission uh, to fudge a little bit on the lectionary and to include all of the Sermon on the Mount, except that for which we will be reading during Lent. Well, beloved, let me begin in Matthew chapter 7. Hear these words. Our Lord says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Beloved, I began with those words from our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the Sermon on the Mount on purpose. For many pastors, theologians, commentators say that All of the Sermon on the Mount must be read with those words in mind. You see, our Lord's sermon, this longest discourse that we have of our Lord that He is giving to His disciples, must be listened to. He says, for the ones who hear these words, the content of these words is chapters 5 through 7, His entire sermon. So, beloved, on the outset of this sermon series, you and I have a choice to make as believers to read these words, to hear them preached, to allow the Spirit then to convict us and to teach us, and to really hear, that is to listen to His words, so that we might be like the wise man or the wise woman who constructs their house not on sand as the foundation, but on the rock who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Many, many years ago, the Lord gave me a great tribulation. I was tasked with teaching critical thinking to 7th graders. (laughs) Now, before you laugh too hard about it, those 7th graders were really sharp, so I'm not here to denigrate them. They were actually really, really good, really sharp students. But I always began that class, and it was a combination of 7th and a few 8th graders. I always began that critical thinking class with this distinction between hearing and listening in English. For hearing is, of course, just utilizing our ears to... um, Uh, to, I guess, uh, in in many ways, receive the sound waves of one's voice coming in. You can hear the sound, the noise. You remember when you were younger, listening to your parents, it kind of sounded like the Charlie Brown, wah, 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 kind of quite often. That's hearing what they had to say, but that's not listening. And that word that's used of our Lord, or by our Lord, in chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, To hear is really more in line with the English, listen to what he has to say. And I would tell my students often 
that the difference between hearing and listening is seen in obedience or application of what was given unto you. So would that you and would that me and my household not simply hear again, as we can often do when sermons are preached, we hear the wah-wah of the Lord or the wah-wah of the preacher. Let us listen to what he has to say and thus be not foolish but wise. Now to our text at hand. Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 1 and verse 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Brothers and sisters, do not read over this first verse so quickly as to miss the point here. Jesus himself, the Son of God, the one who will eventually sit at the right hand of the Father. The new Moses is ascending the mountain here to not only be the law, to fulfill the law, but to give the law of God to his disciples. And that word disciples, uh, disciple there is not, again, someone who simply hears, but it's someone who listens and finally who follows. If you've had a child, again, and you're trying to get them to do something, and you say something over and over and over again. Has anyone ever, ever been there? Oh, three of you. Well, praise the Lord. Everyone else, can you? We need uh, some parenting uh, manuals being written by the rest of you uh, who haven't had to go through this. You say these things over and over, but it's, it's the child. When they, when they finally come into that mode of listening, we know it because they move into obedience. But let me begin with another um, kind of overarching statement here as we move into the Sermon on the Mount here, and that's this. God requires of his people obedience and not perfection. He requires of us obedience and not perfection. I had an epiphany um, the other week uh, in parenting, and I think it's directly applicable to what we're going to find in Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and how his disciples are to receive them and how we're to receive them. I was being hard on my son Levi, as I, as I tend to do. I was being hard on him. I was being hard, and I was demanding perfection on him. Demanding perfection. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, because um, after I was demanding perfection, and he wasn't perfect, and I was getting more upset about it, later on, a few days, basically a few days had passed, I kind of laid off on him a little bit, and I just said, look, this is what's expected. Here's what's expected. You know what, he did some things really well, and he did some things not so well, but he was trying to please his father. He was trying to be obedient. Brothers and sisters, as we enter into the definitive ethical teaching for you and for me from Jesus Christ himself, God himself, he requires not perfection from us, but he requires obedience. And obedience is this long and kind of faithful movement towards God in the same direction of saying, Lord, I want to do as you have asked me to do. But let me also say this. On the other hand, the Lord does, in fact, require perfection. And it's the requirement of perfection that renders you and I actually in a bit of trouble. <laughs> I can't keep it. I'm humiliated often as falling into sin, as being a priest. Lord, I'm a priest. Am I not supposed, I wear the chasuble. Shouldn't I at some point ascend to thy holy throne in great perfection? And those of you who know me and around me, you realize too, I am a miserable offender, as the 1662 prayer book says that we all are. As scripture says that we all are. God requires, 
requires perfection, but he required it, and it was, um, it was given through the life of our Lord. He himself, the perfect Lamb of God, he entered into the Holy of Holies as the perfect sacrifice that allowed you and I then to follow in obedience and to have our sins forgiven. The Father requires of us not perfection, but he requires obedience. Our Lord gathered those disciples up onto that holy mountain. And we're going to see that in the Beatitudes and in the first two teachings of being salt and light and being a city on a hill, our Lord is giving to his disciples, to his followers, a new ethic, a new kingdom, a new way to look at the world. And we're going to see here in a moment, brothers and sisters, that this new ethic that our Lord gives to you and to me to live by, not in perfection but obedience, is juxtaposed in almost every single way to the world, to sin, to flesh, to the devil. But we're called to follow him. My final um, kind of uh, allusion here before we move further in the text is St. Peter. Because brothers and sisters, as we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, there's teaching, a tough teaching on divorce. There's tough teaching on lust, on anger, on retaliation. We're going uh, to get there. But let me remind you again that St. Peter, a holy apostle, the apostle that our Lord would build the church upon, upon St. Peter and his confession, both of those, St. Peter himself and his confession, St. Peter did what three times to our Lord? Well, you all went to the negative first. Let me go to the positive. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Lord, why do you keep asking so many times? Okay, then, then feed my sheep. He loves him. Our Lord came to him, said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. His first words to Peter, to St. Peter, were, follow me. The last words, post-resurrection to Peter, who went back to fishing, was what? Again, follow me, be a disciple. But in between there, we have three, yes, Lord, I love you, but also, as you all mentioned, three denials. Brothers and sisters, we're not required to be perfect, but we're required to be obedient and to follow our Lord. So they're up on the holy mountain, the mountain of God, listening to Jesus, the great rabbi who takes that seat of teaching as the disciples are in front of him. These disciples, these men who will become, one of them, of course, betray our Lord, Another, St. Peter, the rock of the church, would in fact, of course, deny him three times, as we pointed out. These disciples come to listen and to sit under his teaching, this new law, the new Torah. Some early church um, fathers said that if you look at the Beatitudes, though there are either eight or nine, depending on how you read them, they almost kind of match up to the Ten Commandments. So this is obvious that our Lord is taking his men up to, quote-unquote, Mount Sinai, we might say, to receive his instruction, his Torah. But you see, brothers and sisters, they're not just receiving um, uh, ethical advice. We're going to see that Jesus actually embodies the things that he is giving to them. He is the perfect word of God whom we follow. If you talk to those who have left the faith, who have departed from the faith the Christian faith, that is. Many of them will say that 
the church or the people in the church or in their family or their friends, they had all the theology right. Maybe they could even quote Matthew 5 through 7. They could quote the teachings on anger and retaliation and lust. Maybe even they were the ones that said, hey, build your house on the foundation. Be wise. But at the end of the day, they never applied any of the teaching of God to their life. Many have left the church because they have seen that dichotomy, that um, cognitive dissonance that can creep into the church of God and destroy us. For we'll see that um, the people of God, the disciples in particular, but you and I, nonetheless, we have two options. Well, three if you count obeying and following. But one option is to try to construct our own reality, our own ethic, based on what we feel is right or what the world says is right. That's the pagan approach. Or we can be as the Pharisees. I can sit here or, well, stand here from the pulpit and preach to you all these things, but really kind of hold them in abeyance in my mind and live however I want to. And you in the pews, you can come to church every Sunday, you can tithe to the church, you can serve on the vestry, you can teach Sunday school, you can do all these certain things, but never really actually ascend by the power of the Holy Spirit into obedience. You can hold these things in your mind, but not in your heart, not in your life. Brothers and sisters, we often fall short of that, but the Lord, of course, gives us forgiveness. We're reminded of our Exodus passage in Exodus chapter 12, that the blood of the Lamb was, in fact, slain for you and for me, that we can, in fact, repent of our sins and continue in obedience as best that we can. But here comes the teaching from our Lord, verse 2. And Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught his disciples. And here's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the, the fabric of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. That it's not the powerful, it's not the powerful, the perfect, the rich, those who have it all together. It's in fact the poor in spirit, those who are suffering, those who are meek, are lowly, who are humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who shall be comforted. They are the ones finally who shall inherit the earth. Every commentator that I read has said this. This blessedness, and that's what these beatitudes mean, that to enter into blessedness, you and I must enter into being poor in spirit, that is, humble and lowly, not prideful, not having sins, as the Old Testament says, with a high hand, but entering lowly to follow our Lord. For we know that, of course, pride comes and pride destroys us. There's no um, room for pride in the kingdom for the proud see themselves as the Savior. The proud see themselves as the ones who are, un, uh, who are um, clean rather than unclean. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the text says, for they shall be satisfied. You see, but these promises of blessedness, brothers and sisters, are not just of this age. They are in the age to come. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are times in our life, brothers and sisters, where we hunger and thirst for justice and for righteousness in our lives. We see see someone treating someone else unfairly, unjustly. 
we see the suffering around in the world and we hunger and thirst for things to be made right. But the promise of our Lord is never that those things will be made right fully in this life. The promise is that there is a time of reckoning to come where things will be made right, where the righteous shall see the face of the Lord in that new heaven and the new earth where all is made right. For those of us who thirst and hunger for that blessedness and that righteousness, we will be satisfied. For in the new heaven and the new earth, we will eat, of course, at the great supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, again, our culture, our culture is not about showing mercy to those who harm us, showing mercy really at all. And the definition of mercy, of course, is not giving something to someone that they probably do deserve. Our culture is, no, 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 judge those, punish those. Be the judge, the jury, the executioner. Don't show mercy. But our Lord says the kingdom is one of mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. This beatitude has always struck me that, that our ability to see God is linked by Jesus himself to the purity in our heart. That when our heart has um, impure, uh, unholy intentions or thoughts, that that clouds our ability to see God, to see our Lord. But we're called, of course, to purity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God, what does that mean here? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Brothers and sisters, it says uh, not peacekeepers who are running around trying to keep the peace, but those who, in fact, make peace by their presence. We know this distinction. But it says that they shall be called sons of God. For what has God, in fact, done for his children? What has Jesus done for his disciples? Through his mercy, he has made peace between us and God. And you and I, if we are to receive the blessedness of the kingdom and of our Lord, we are to be those who make peace, who make it with those um, who, who, who are far off, who have even sinned against us. And I think the disciples at this point might be thinking to themselves, but Lord, those people are too far off. They're actually harming, harming us. And then our Lord's next beatitude, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, brothers and sisters, we will face persecution as disciples of our Lord. It's, um, it's a promise, actually. But we're going to see later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we're called not to persecute back, but to pray for them. For blessedness then is to rejoice in that suffering, in that persecution, because there is a time of reckoning and an afterlife to come in which you and I will have a great reward in heaven. Let me pause here to say this. The Sermon on the Mount in total makes no sense if the afterlife is not a real thing. It makes no sense for us to live in this blessedness if the new heaven and the new earth are not um, that new reality that await those of us who are in the Lord. Beloved, let me uh, conclude with this, our final section here of the Sermon on the Mount. 
beginning in verse uh, 13. Our Lord says to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Our Lord is saying to us and to his disciples, not um, become the salt of the earth. You are a disciple of mine, therefore you are salt of the earth. What does salt do? I know you've heard this over and over. Salt adds flavor. flavor. It preserves but also something else that salt does. Salt kills the impurities in meat. It brings purity, righteousness to situations. You see, brothers and sisters, let me remind you finally that this kingdom ethic that we're given in all the Sermon on the Mount is not just to be stored here, but it's to be lived out in the world, in our lives, in obedience. Because you see, when you bring that saltiness, we're going to see at the very end of this teaching that all who see the saltiness, all who, who enter into the light that we're going to give, they will see all of these things and give glory to God who is in heaven. We're called to be salt. Finally, you are the light of the world, our Lord says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and he gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, as with the salt and the light, the nature of salt is to preserve and to give flavor, to kill the impurities. Uh, The nature of light is to give hope, is to give a way forward, to give um, a path forward. It is to, to give knowledge and truth to situations. That is what light is. And brothers and sisters, if we are deciding not to live in the light, then we are living against our nature. If we're deciding not to live as salt, we're living actually against the nature that God has given us. Deacon Zach preached a wonderful sermon this last Sunday where we, in fact, had that wonderful baptism of sweet Nathan Holland. And we were reminded that there was a great identity switch at that baptism where Nathan was grafted fully into Christ's death and his resurrection. And that question now for Nathan as he grows and for all of us as we continue as baptized believers is, how then now shall we live? And brothers and sisters, our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount gives us that way forward. Let me close finally uh, with this. Beloved, um, as I close with the prayer that I prayed just a little bit ago, the second Sunday of Epiphany, our prayer for this Sunday, let me say this. Some of you are here this morning and the commandments are hard to follow of our Lord. Um, you, are, you are in um, the company of all of us who see these as hard to follow. But remember, our Lord requires not perfection but obedience to Him. And then in living in obedience, I promise you, brothers and sisters, that when you live as best you can according to the Word of God by the power of the Spirit, when you take on these, these states of blessedness that our Lord gives, when we try to live as salt and we try to live as light, you're going to see that the Spirit uplifts you. He uplifts you. And things become a bit easier, a bit easier as we move and strive towards the holiness that is promised to those who follow in obedience our Lord. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God, now and forever. Amen.